<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Josh Hammer. I hope you guys are having a great holiday weekend. This is President's Day weekend. You know, formally speaking, the U.S. government actually refers to this holiday not as President's Day. This is a common misconception. The formal U.S. government name for this holiday is actually Washington's birthday, which is a little disingenuous, I have always thought, because Washington's birthday, of course, has a specific date. It is February 22nd, so they call it President's Day because Abraham Lincoln's birthday, which happens to be my birthday as well, was just on February 12th. Anyway, regardless of what we're calling it, I hope you guys are having a great weekend. We thought we would throw out to you a little special for this President's Day weekend, Washington's birthday weekend, whatever we are, in fact, calling it, because as the case may be, the presidential race is starting to heat up. So let's talk 2024 over President's Day weekend. Really no better time to do it. The news on that front over the past week is the fact that we finally, finally have a first challenger to former President Donald Trump, who, of course, back in Mar-a-Lago in November, shortly after the election, put his hat forward for his 2024 candidacy. And his first challenger is former South Carolina governor and Trump's own former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. I'm more confident than ever that we can make this vision real in our time, because that's what I've seen my entire life. As a brown girl growing up in a black and white world, I saw the promise of America unfold before me. What is this identity politics drill? I mean, isn't the entire purpose of the American right to push back against this absolute garbage that because you have a certain chromosomal structure or a certain genitalia or a certain skin color or a certain sexual orientation. I mean, that is what the left is doing. Why is the right here, Nikki Haley, why is she playing into that? I understand like the whole like immigrant narrative. Marco Rubio did this a little bit in his 2016 campaign speech talking about how he was raised by Cubans in West Miami. To an extent, presidential campaigns, and I guess all campaigns, are biographical. But the whole, like, I'm a brown person, I am a woman thing, this is the woke ideology. Why is Nikki Haley doing this in her presidential announcement run? Well, as the case may be, Nikki Haley has a bit of a history of doing this, actually. You know, Ryan Gradusky was able to pull up this interview that Nikki Haley gave in 2012 with the New York Times, where I kid you not, Nikki Haley, I, I didn't even know this, to be honest with you. Nikki Haley, apparently back in 2012, to told the New York Times, she said, quote, the reason I actually ran for office is because of Hillary Clinton. I'm not making this up, by the way. <laughs> she really said this. Nikki Haley continued, quote, she said, so Hillary said, that when it comes to women running for office, there will be everybody that tells you why you shouldn't, but that's all the reasons why we need you to do it. And I walked out of there thinking, that's it. I'm running for office. What the hell is this? 
This is not the kind of thing that a conservative says. And I'm not necessarily saying that Nikki Haley is not a conservative. I mean, you know, her her conservative credentials on on a bunch of different issues are, are just fine, although they're not fine on other issues. We can get into that in a little bit. But just the way of speaking here, the way of formulating your run, she even had a joke in that announcement speech in Charleston where she was like, Oh, you know, uh, let's wait to see which woman prevails or something along those lines. I mean, she's already talking about this race through intersectional terms. And you know it's going to get much worse from here if this is what her advisors are telling her to do in her introductory speech. So this is bad, (laughs) to put it mildly there. And in fact, Nikki Haley's announcement run was so so curious, so odd, that the Wall Street Journal editorial board, which is probably the quintessential media organ for the Republican Party establishment, had a scathing editorial that evening, the following morning, so Wednesday evening, Thursday morning of last week, where they they said that it is difficult to figure out what the, quote, rationale for Nikki Haley's 2024 presidential bid is. Now, again, we all knew it was coming. She's had this Stand for America organization for the past few years. She has done a good job, to her credit, of saying in the public limelight, I don't want to go over Nikki Haley too, too hard because by all accounts, she's a personally nice person. But the reality is that her campaign, besides not being anywhere near as conservative on the actual cultural issues, the civilizational sanity issues, the issues that we see here in Florida every day, the issues that really animate the party, animate the base. No, of course, she's not going to be a solid on those issues. Of course, she's not. I mean, it really does sound like Nikki Haley has not changed her talking points or her view of the world or of American politics in general in years. She is so kind of instinctively Bush-era neocon ultra-interventionist that I half expect her to go to New Hampshire or Iowa tomorrow and start talking about Fallujah or Al-Anbar province. David Petraeus and the counterinsurgency. You think I'm joking, but I'm really not. I mean, she's kind of programmed like a robot that knows how to say three things. China, Russia, and socialism. And when she talks about socialism, by the way, this is the the interesting part. She's usually, she's criticizing the left for sure, but she's oftentimes actually criticizing her own side. And this, to me, is actually the most interesting part about why Nikki Haley is such a terrible candidate for 2024. Her foreign policy is way too neoconservative. The identity politics crap is just that. It is crap. It is incumbent upon the right not to play into that, but to outright oppose it. But her just general worldview, and especially on the economics, I find to be totally off as far as what the American right needs. And let's play an excerpt of a speech that Nikki Haley gave at the Heritage Foundation in 2021. Then I'm going to unpack that for you. It pains me to see some of our friends turning their backs on our principles. They're similar to the frightened Tories Margaret Thatcher faced in 1980. You know what I'm talking about. The conservatives who claim capitalism no longer works. They conclude that economic freedom fails families and hurts workers. So they're trying to create a hybrid capitalism, a hyphenated capitalism. It's all a sham. Tear off the window dressing, and they're calling for more mandates, more rules, and more government control of the economy and our daily life. They want to create more welfare programs and accelerate government spending. It's unthinkable, 
but they're fine with less personal freedom and more government power. That's not capitalism. It's socialism light. There was a time when conservatives understood that. In fact, there used to be a name for it. The quote, dime store New Deal. Nikki Haley is exactly the kind of person who, when anyone right of center has the thought that, oh, I don't know, maybe we should be incentivizing the reshoring of semiconductor supply chains as Xi Jinping and China are eyeing Taiwan and its very important company, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. You know, so let's say a conservative, you know, like a former guest on this show in Orrin Kasser or Julius Krein, for example, let's say that a conservative comes out there and stands up in support of some sort of reshoring economic nationalist kind of Hamiltonian measure as far as manufacturing supply chains. Nikki Haley is the kind of person who would say that you are socialist light, that you are only a hyphenated capitalist. This, my friends, is not knowing what time it is. This is literally being in a time warp, going back to the uniparty era of the late 1990s, the early 2000s, when we were all free traders. Oh, let's let China ascend to the World Trade Organization. By the way, Joe Biden was the leader in that back in 2001, along with Dianne Feinstein. This was the era of the so-called Washington Consensus. It was the uniparty moment from a geopolitical perspective. It was the aftermath of the Cold War. The United States was dominant. There was no close second power. None of that, the point is, is the same today. We are in a multipolar world. The rise of China is exceedingly real and exceedingly harrowing. And the era of globalism is over. Over. And we have to be cognizant of that just empirical reality. And that is going to demand a slightly different approach, not a diametrically opposite approach, but a slightly different approach to the great challenges of our time from an economic policy and economic statecraft perspective. The listeners of this show heard Steve Cortez talk a lot about that when he came on recently. Lots of good stuff in here. There's a lot of intellectual ferment as far as the policies that it's going to take to build up America's manufacturing base again, to actually make stuff here again, to kind of get to a macro economy that does not singularly prioritize lowest, lowest consumer prices at any and all possible, but actually stands for production, the dignity of labor, and various other genuine and worthy inputs into the broader formula. Nikki Haley would swat down all of that. Put more crudely, Nikki Haley has no idea what time it is. No idea what time it is from both a foreign policy perspective and, a, and an economic policy perspective. And again, I don't want to speak too ill of her. I'm sure she's a wonderful and nice woman. I actually happen to think she did a great job as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She was a stalwart in standing up for our allies, especially Israel comes to mind. Israel, of course, is totally, totally uh, surrounded by its enemies, the United Nations. The United, the United Nations famously passes more anti-Israel resolutions in a given year than resolutions against the rest of the world combined. You know, if that's not anti-Semitism, I'm not sure what it is. N Nikki Haley was very good in that role. But I have to say this. U.S. ambassador to the United Nations is probably one of the easiest roles in all politics. Literally all it requires, and I, I'm not selling her short, okay? She actually did a good job. But what the role requires is you basically go there, you look into the camera with a stern face, and you flip two middle fingers at a bunch of Islamist thugs and tin pot dictator tyrants. That's, that, that is what the job of U.S. ambassador to the United Nations entails. So, she did a good job there, going back to the governor of South Carolina role, which she held for two terms. I, I can't help but also just add this. When you think back to Nikki Haley's tenure as the governor of South Carolina, what is the one 
accomplishment that comes to mind. The one accomplishment that comes to mind is the fact that she convinced South Car- that she convinced the South Carolina legislature to take the Confederate flag down from the state house in Columbia, South Carolina, in the aftermath of the horrific shooting from Dylan Roof at that black church. Now, say what you want about that particular issue. I happen to not have a super strong stance personally, to be fully candid, on the Confederate flag at the state house issue, but that's a weird issue to be known for, especially from a conservative perspective. So look, I wish you all the best, Nikki Haley. Even the Wall Street Journal editorial board says that there was no clear rationale for your candidacy. I guess the voters will ultimately decide that. Hard to see where she goes from here, though. But speaking of the rest of the field, now that Nikki Haley has declared, I would predict that the floodgates are now going to open up real soon, real quick, especially beginning with her fellow Trump administration alumni here. So I'm speaking perhaps most in particular, former uh, Vice President Mike Pence and former Secretary of State and CIA Director, people forget that, Mike Pompeo, who was both Secretary of State and CIA, CIA Director under President Trump. I would guess they, those are probably going to be the, the next two to throw their hat into the ring. I mean, all of this is speculative, of course, but once the floodgates are open from former Trump underlings to challenge the big guy in Mar-a-Lago, you kind of have to think that Pence and Pompeo are going to throw their hats in the ring soon. They both have their 501c3 organizations. They've got the books. They've got the TV time, the speeches, they're, you know, the Iowa trips. They're, they're both clearly, clearly gearing up to run there. You know, speaking of people who have no idea what time it is, John freaking Bolton, of all people, apparently was on British television back in early January, a month and a half ago or so, where he told his interviewer, he said that he was going to run for president. He has not really followed that up with any kind of serious announcement. So who the hell knows what he was talking about there? Um, Hard to see how John Bolton gets anything above 0.01% in a primary. But, you know, if he wants to throw his hat in the ring, I guess all the more power to him. So I think over the next month or two, that is really what you're looking at. The other name that comes to mind is someone who I predict might kind of throw their hats in the ring, potentially, potentially real soon, is Nikki Haley's fellow South Carolinian, Tim Scott of South Carolina, who I personally view as a totally mealy-mouthed kind of generic Republican, to be honest with you. There's nothing particularly exciting about Tim Scott. You know, kudos to him for being the descendants of slaves, uh, for black man, South Carolina, the Confederate flag there, blah, 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 blah. But uh, again, are we playing the identity politics game or are we not? Are we opposing the leftist, wokest garbage, this toxic, pernicious, woke ideology? Are we going to be the party of anti-wokeism or not? With Tim Scott, too. Like, I, I just, I want to pull my freaking hair out. When I hear people talking about him as some great Republican savior because he happens to be the only black Republican in the Senate Republican caucus, that is true. He is. Is it symbolically meaningful that he is that in a state like South Carolina where the first shots in the Civil War famously were fired upon Fort Sumter in 1861? Sure. Definitely. I'm not going to deny that. But... At this late stage of a declining republic with Chinese spy surveillance balloons traversing across the, across the entire North American continent, with China testing nuclear-capable hypersonic missiles around the circumference of the globe in a matter of seconds, 
Is that really how we're going to select the next president of the United States? I would submit to you that the answer better be not for our own sake. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So after I predict Pompeo and Pence and probably Tim Scott throw their hats in the ring, then you're going to have any number of people that could potentially throw their hats in the ring. And again, I will reiterate one more time. This is all speculative. We truly have no idea who's going to get in, who's going to not get in. But it's at that point, you know, it's possible that you might see some folks like Glenn Youngkin, potentially the governor of uh, Virginia. You might see Larry Hogan, the rhino extraordinaire, absolute garbage, moderate squish, total turd of a Republican. Have no idea what he's doing, even thinking of running, but he seems like he's itching up to run. You know, maybe he was fine as governor of Maryland. That's a very blue state. So the fact that there was a Republican governor there recently is okay, I guess. But the fact that Larry Hogan thinks that his brand of Republicanism, I'm not even going to call it conservatism, the fact that Larry Hogan has the chutzpah to think that his brand of Republicanism might possibly translate to the national stage is just outrageous (laughs) and bespeaks an incredible lack of humility and frankly, just an astounding lack of self-awareness as well. Not so dissimilar a tale pertaining to Chris Sununu up in New Hampshire, who was a very popular governor, both in his state and from what I can tell nationally, but doesn't necessarily have a massive national profile. Do not think that he is the most conservative person in the world, to put it mildly. He's been taking some bizarre shots at Ron DeSantis recently, so hard to see Chris Sununu kind of going very far as well. And, you know, that, of course, brings us to the L- the 30 thousand pound elephant in the room of all rooms, which is the governor here in the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis. According to current polling, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are basically tied. In some polls, Trump is ahead. In some polls, DeSantis is ahead. Interestingly, most of the head-to-head polls that I see right now have DeSantis beating Trump. Most of them, I'm not going to say all of them, I don't have every single poll memorized, but that has been a fairly common theme. And generally speaking, the bigger the field, the more that benefits Donald Trump. It's actually a very similar phenomenon to those of you with a long enough political memory to what happened in the 2016 primary. So the 2016 Republican primary was an absolutely massive, massive field. It famously was so big that they had to have a kiddie table If you remember that correctly, people like Lindsey Graham, Rand Paul, Bobby Jindal, Rick Perry, maybe even, who were at that kind of second tier of debaters who were just never polling high enough. But even when the race got to Iowa, New Hampshire, and so forth there, the field was still big enough where Donald Trump won that primary, if I'm not mistaken, with the lowest actual kind of cumulative popular vote percentage of the Republican primary voters in the post-1972 history of kind of the modern kind of Iowa caucus, New Hampshire primary primary era. He ended up with a total of around 40%, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. It was like roughly 40% of the total Republican primary vote that year, which again was the, was the lowest ever 
in the post-1972 modern era of partisan presidential primaries. Now, it looks like the 2024 Republican field is not going to be as big as 2016. You typically see no more than 8 to 10 names at the most that get bandied about, which definitionally is lower than the number of names that were there in that gargantuan 2016 field. But there's going to be a number of candidates. I mean, if Nikki Haley is getting in is kind of the point I'm trying to make here. If Nikki Haley is getting in, then, like we said, you assume Pence is getting in, you assume Pompeo is getting in. All the way that Larry Hogan and Sununu and Youngkin are talking, they probably all hop in. Does Christy Noem enter the race? She's been sucking up the Trump a lot. It seems like she probably wants that Donald Trump vice presidential slot for 2024 if he is the nominee. But, you know, maybe Christy Noem go, goes ahead and throws her hat into the ring as well. But in all of these polls that show kind of a, a broader field, where you have the six, seven, eight candidates or so. DeSantis and Trump are typically neck and neck. They are very, very close. So on the Real Clear Politics average, which is where I always go for my polling data there, most polls still show Trump ahead in these multi-candidate races, but it's oftentimes close. It's oftentimes close. And crucially speaking, the lower and lower the field gets, the more you shrink it, the better DeSantis does. Again, he hasn't announced yet. He Who knows? Maybe he, maybe he doesn't announce. But right now, I think we have to assume that he does. So that raises one obvious question, which is the GOP donor class. Why would you be incentivized to get in financially behind anyone who is polling at this current juncture at like 5 or 6% or lower? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because what could easily, easily happen here, easily, is that Trump coasts by in the primary via a very similar strategy as last time, which is he gets his solid 35, 40% of the field and all the votes are chopped up elsewhere. But it's a little more complicated than that, because if you think back to 2016, the Trump phenomenon was genuinely novel. The whole MAGA thing was just being rolled out. And here was a candidate who, for the first time, was talking about certain hard-cutting cultural civilizational issues pertaining to trade and immigration and American identity, all of that, globalism versus nationalism, all of that. Here for the first time is a candidate talking about this in a totally, totally different manner. Well, that's not necessarily the case today. The Overton window of how Republicans talk about these issues, call it the Trump effect if you want to, it has shifted so much that a lot of what Trump said at that time, today, seven or eight years later, is not necessarily unique to him. Now, he's still one of the most unabashed spokespersons for some of those issues, but we also now have a track record to judge Donald Trump on. Did he accomplish his signature issue, building the wall at the U.S.-Mexico southern border? No, 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 he obviously did not. He barely even made a dent in it, for God's sake. You know, did he disentangle the U.S. from China? 
uh, you know, he took a couple of measures to kind of get a start on the right path. He had some strategic tariffs in place. And to his credit, he was the, he was really kind of the first U.S. president since Richard Nixon went to visit Chairman Mao in China in the 1970s. Trump was really the first president since then to really rethink the U.S.-China relationship. But China is now more emboldened and bigger and stronger than ever. Just look at the freaking spy balloon. So he has a track record to govern him on now. Look at his big two domestic pieces of legislation. Trump's first two, or really, no, Trump's big two pieces of legislation that were passed by Congress and he signed into law. The first was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was a very, very kind of standard boilerplate kind of corporate tax cutting, lower the marginal income tax rates kind of Wall Street Journal editorial board supply side prescription. I mean, if you looked up Republican orthodoxy, what some of us refer to as the dead consensus, kind of the pre-2016 status quo ante that a lot of us want to kind of move past, you know, for all the rhetoric, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was that. It was that policy. And in fact, the second major law that passed under President Trump was actually even worse than that because it wasn't just anodyne, it was bad. I'm speaking here, of course, about the first Step Act, which passed in December 2018 by, I kid you not, an 88 to 12 vote margin. There were only 12 courageous Republican senators who opposed that bill. Tom Cotton from Arkansas was the leader of the pack, to his immense credit. The first Step Act was a massive federal jailbreak that reduced sentences for lots of bad people, bad dudes. It was a garbage piece of so-called criminal justice reform. It was actually the apotheosis. It was the apex of the so-called criminal justice reform movement that started at a state level, a lot of coke money, trying to take the Republican Party in a more libertarian direction. It really culminated in the First Step Act. And I'm not going to draw a direct line from the First Step Act to the dramatic rise in homicide and violent crime that followed not that long after, in 2020, after George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter Antifa rise. I'm not going to draw a direct line there. That would be a little disingenuous of me, and that was obviously a very complicated, horrific, horrific, but complicated phenomenon happening there in 2020 with the confluence of COVID and the, the the race conversation and all of that. But surely, surely, if there is any issue that conservatives should be seizing the moral high ground on, should be pounding the table on, appealing to suburban mothers on, appealing to inner city blacks, Hispanics, appealing to everyone, it is the crime issue. You know, I was speaking in downtown Chicago a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine, and I said the same thing, is where is the crime conversation on the right? This issue is begging conservatives and Republicans to be more outspoken on. My only point here is that Donald Trump is a particularly curious spokesperson for that position, and he has given off indications that that is his purported position nowadays, at least. He's a rather curious spokesperson for that position, given the First Step Act in particular. 
But Donald Trump recently has been doing what Donald Trump does, which is go to the gutter. I mean, if you've, if you've been following any of this crap, it's sordid stuff. It is, it is not pleasant. He's been whipping out all of the juvenile nicknames all over again. He's calling DeSantis Meatball Ron, Ron DeSanctimonious. By the way, that is not Trump at his best. You know, Ron DeSanctimonious, whatever you may think of Ron DeSantis, Ron, De, Ron DeSanctimonious does not exactly have the same ring to it as Lion Ted Cruz. I think that was his nickname for Ted Cruz back in 2016 or Low Energy Jeb. Someone should ask Trump to spell sanctimonious, see if he's able to get that right. But as we look at the 2024 field here, and you know, thus far, Ron DeSantis, to his great credit, has simply not gotten at all into the gutter with Trump. He's barely even addressed it. He has basically said a few offhand comments at press conferences. He's basically said, just look at the scoreboard, look at what we're doing in Florida, all the wins we had. He's said, I'm focused on I'm, I'm focused on results for Floridians. I'm focused on fighting Brandon. That would be Joe Biden, of course, up in D.C. DeSantis has not been talking about Donald Trump. Personally, what I would actually most like to see if this hypothetical 2024 matchup does happen, if it does, what I would personally like to see is, you know, let's say in a hypothetical world, Trump is saying this juvenile crap on stage literally like inches away from DeSantis, if that is literally what it ultimately ends up being. What I would personally most like to see is DeSantis just ignore it on national TV. Wouldn't that just piss off Trump the most is just ignoring it if you're standing right next to the guy and just focus on your own issue, focus on, focus on your tenure, focus on that. So look, we have not minced words on this, sh on this show in the past. We are big fans of Ron DeSantis. We have said time and time again that if he does run for president of the United States, and if he does run, I do not predict that he would announce that run until after the current Florida legislative session ends in May or June. That That is our guy. That is who we are supporting on this show. And to me, he is the perfect confluence of factors in a prospective presidential candidate. Because he is not a return to the pre-2016 status quo anti dead consensus guy. He embraces he more than embraces, he relishes the cultural and civilizational issues that today define the American right in its anti-wokist crusade, its counter-revolutionary march to recapture the institutions that have been lost to a century of progressive monoculture. He embraces that fight six ways from Sunday, whether it's education, whether it is gender ideology, whether it's critical race theory. He has shown that he is not afraid to take on Fortune 500 big corporations. The fight with Disney, of course, encapsulated that sentiment. He has spoken favorably of reshoring, manufacturing. The guy just gets it, okay? He just gets it. But we are obviously just gearing up here when it comes to all things 2024 related. Again, Nikki Haley's presidential bid going back to the beginning of the show, probably not going anywhere. But as of right now, it's looking like a Trump versus DeSantis fight if DeSantis does ultimately get into the race. Everyone else is going to be is going to be playing catch up from there. Tough to see how any of these other candidates make particular inroads, but you never know.
these things do tend to come out of nowhere. Of course, at this time, back in the 2015-2016 presidential election time period, Scott Walker was one of the candidates who was doing quite well, although Scott Walker notably was never polling nearly as well around that time as Ron DeSantis is currently polling in these way too early and premature 2024 polls. So that comparison that some people have made, I find to be quite specious. So we will see. The point here is that Nikki Haley is out of the gate and this thing is off and running. And we hope that we have given you some food for thought here on this President's Day weekend special of The Josh Hammer Show. Hope you have a great holiday weekend. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.